quiet your mind. Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But two brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Okay, and welcome to another episode of the Dawn of Mantis podcast. I am your host, Joe, and uh, I am solo Joe again tonight for only the second time in 65 episodes. I think this is episode 65. So bear with me because this is uh, I haven't done this a whole lot, but Ivan uh, was not able to be here with me tonight, so I wanted to go ahead and get an episode out this week, so I'm going to do this one by myself. Um, quick update. So... Uh, we alluded to it a little bit on last week's episode. Uh, I know more, not a whole lot more, but a little bit more this week. And he is still missing, and I feel more comfortable giving, you know, the full details of this. So uh, the deal is, uh, my friend and former bandmate Jeff Elmer uh, went missing last week, last Monday morning, technically, or or Sunday night. And uh, we really don't know a whole lot more than what we did last week. I jotted down kind of what we do know. There's a cavalcade, a, a an ocean of of bullshit. Eh, pardon, but really there's no better term for it. On Facebook, there was a Facebook uh, page, uh, uh, you know, help find Jeff Elmer facebook page and really all it's that i have seen from looking i don't have facebook obviously but looking at it through my wife's account uh it just looks like a whole lot of unsubstantiated rumors and crazy the things that people are so sure of they they found his phone confirmed and then the next day they don't know where his phone at confirmed it's like who's confirming this who's are you confirming it because that means nothing to any of us so I've been into contact with some people that are a bit closer to it that, that, you know, will know a little bit more facts. So this is the deal. Uh, Jeff had dinner with his parents on Sunday evening, February 9th. He left around 8 PM to head back to his house. He did make it home that night. And we know that because he left his parents' house with leftovers and those leftovers were your groceries was the term. They were found at his house, so he did make it there. He brought them there. Uh, his, he's really close with his parents. And the next uh, morning, the father tried to call him, and uh, I think it was like 6, 6.30 in the morning, couldn't get a hold of him, which is never the case, right? So I think he tried many times. He couldn't get a hold of him, so he immediately phoned the police. And obviously the police informed him of the 24-hour waiting period. So the next morning, Tuesday, February 11th, he he called again to file this missing persons report. This was posted on several sites, including the Morgan Nick Foundation site, and it read, Jeffrey, uh, Robert Jeffrey Elmer, missing from Springdale, Arkansas, since February 10th, 2020, 61 years old, male, height uh, 5'11", weight 184 pounds, blue eyes, hair color brown. Uh, he drives a 2013 Scion XB silver in color. And then it has the phone number for the Springdale PD. 
So following that, and probably because of that, the next day, which would be a Wednesday, uh, Jeff's car was found at uh, Veterans Memorial Park at Lake Fayetteville, and that's less than 10 miles from his home. I think it's like eight miles. Uh, The car was locked. Nothing else was found at the scene. His phone was not present. Uh, People began searching, uh, and by Saturday, February 15th, several departments launched a full-scale search at the lake, including dogs, sonar equipment on boats, drones, and many people on foot and horseback. Nothing is found. The following day, authorities announced they are ending the search effort at the lake until further notice. A week after Jeff's disappearance, his father finds his iPad and notifies police he also he turns the phone or the iPad, sorry, into the police, and I I, I heard that he did have the passcode to that, so they're going to be able to get on that and find out, you know, hopefully something that will help. So that those are the facts as I know them, and it's just maddening. It, it, it's it's crazy because I am obsessed with missing persons cases. Obviously, you know, I have a pod, I started a podcast about it and. Even on this podcast, we 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 have done episodes on missing people, uh, but it is just maddening when it is somebody that you know. And the story with with Jeff and uh, how I know him is roughly seven years ago or so. Uh, he joined our band and he played bass for us for four years, and so for uh, for every weekend for four years i i was on stage with this guy you know you get to know someone really well we're talking three hours every every show we do is three hours and sometimes we do two shows a weekend and you know we're playing every weekend sometimes on thursday night sometimes on tuesday nights as well that's not counting practices that's not counting driving you know riding together on the bus an hour or two or two and a half or three to and from the gigs so needless to say i got to know the guy a little bit and uh, he is just, this is so cliche, but you know, I guess maybe only good people vanish, I guess. Because every time you ever hear anyone that's vanished, when they when they interview the, the friends and family of theirs, everyone's always like, oh, he was the greatest guy, or she lit up a room and all this. Uh, but then when I'm talking to people, uh, I'm saying that. I hear myself saying that, but it's true. Uh, Jeff was 61 years old, uh, just a, a great guy. He was a young 61. You would not, never believe that he was 60. He looks 45, you know. He just does not look 61. But uh, really solid guy, works, comes home, lives on a tight schedule. That's another thing that scares, you know, all of us about this disappearance. It's super weird. Uh, plays music on the weekends, really close to his parents. No, no riffraff with this guy. You know what I mean? He is just a straight down the middle, uh, solid guy. Um. Anyway, there's lots of theories. I'm not going to name any of them because why? Uh, Based on what information we have, I'm just not going to. There's enough of that going on already online and stuff. My phone's been exploding because uh, apparently when you when you search Jeff, a lot of the photos and videos of him and stuff that come up are from when he was with in my band. Uh, And so a lot of people are still thinking he's in the band and even some news sites and stations are reporting, you know, night train bassist uh, Jeff Elmer missing and, and this and that. So I've been having all these people call me and I've had to tell them, no, look, I mean, I still we still text each other every once in a while and stuff. But uh, he wasn't actually in our band and hasn't been for two and two years and 
maybe two and a half years or a little over two years, something like that. It's It's been a, a minute. So uh, anyway, there's been a lot of confusion there and stuff. But that is all I know, or I guess all anyone knows. Uh, I do think, and I did hear, and this makes sense, that the police do have more information and more clues than, than you know they have released to the public, which that's up to them if that's going to help find Jeff then more power to him. It, it is maddening to not know. I mean, I went, I went to the lake where his car was found uh, a couple of days ago and just walked around for a, a long time. And it's uh, after walking around that lake for a couple hours, uh, I, I have the feeling he was not there. You know what I mean? I, I feel like, I feel like he parked his car there and then left with, I don't know if it was with somebody else or what. I just, with the search efforts that they've done, and I know it's a big lake, and so he he could be at the bottom of it, but I just don't feel like that is the case. Um, he had this like canary yellow looking jacket that he wore a lot, and I heard it, that's what he had on when he was last seen. Um, no no telling if he was wearing it the next day or whatever. Uh, his car was found at the lake on Wednesday. Who knows when it actually showed up there because they didn't put out the the be on the lookout, you know, for this car until Tuesday. That thing could have been sitting there, you know, Monday. I don't know. I just know that he didn't show up for work Monday morning. Like I said, he's a solid guy, uh, not flighty at all. So any deviation from his regular routine is it's one of those deals where, you know, it's, it's an automatic red flag. Anyway, that's all we know about him. And I've been completely obsessed. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with this type of stuff anyway, but like I said earlier, man, it, when it's someone that, you know, and even though I hadn't been close with him for a couple of years, other than random texts and stuff, um, it's just like, where are you? You know, I just, I was saying that out loud to myself, walking around the lakes, where the hell are you, man? Where the hell are you, Jeff? And you go back in your mind and you try to, I want to try to remember every conversation we ever had. I want to remember every, it's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. Uh, you know, someone else in my life disappeared 20 something years ago, 23 years ago now, uh, and my family, but, uh, I only ever met him once or twice at like family get togethers. I didn't really know that guy that well. So obviously it's still awful that he disappeared. Uh, but this is the first case that, you know, someone that I know intimately well, I just know really well and uh, has spent a lot of time with and stuff, hundreds of hours on stage and on the bus. And it's, you know, I, I, of course I would venture to say not many people have anyone in their life at all that they know even vaguely disappear. But anyway, it's super strange. It's maddening. It is, I'm not having dreams about him. It's all I think about. It's all I talk about, uh, in, in the house and everywhere else. And I think my wife is about to throw me out because she's you know, tired of my crazy theories and, and <laughs> everything. But anyway, hopefully uh, I can't envision a scenario where he's okay. I Some people have just said, well, what if he just left his car there and hopped in with someone else and went to Paris? And I was like, well, I, I would give anything for that to be true. But Jeff would not do that to his parents, in my opinion. He wouldn't. Do, I mean, he's got there's like 400 people in this Facebook group to find every, everyone loves Jeff, right? So very strange. The whole thing is very, just completely bizarre. So uh, I'll keep you guys updated on that. I would give anything to be able to give you good news next week or any time in the future, but we'll see. 
So the case that we are covering tonight, let me get a drink of my Dr. Pepper juice here. It's a fairly gruesome one. Uh, when I knew that Ivan wasn't going to be able to join me tonight, and I got a couple of stories here that I've got typed up research for. This is the one I chose because I don't know if he particularly enjoys the gruesome ones as much as <laughs> I do. And so this is kind of a little bit more of a gruesome one. So I figure we'll do this while, while we're solo Joe tonight. This is about the uh, the Axe Man of New Orleans, and this was a super. I've, this has been in in the in my wheelhouse for a long time, and and uh, I've been looking forward to covering this. So here we go. Uh, named after the Duke of Orleans, who reigned as regent for Louis the Fifteenth from seventeen fifteen to seventeen twenty three, the city of New Orleans was founded in May of seventeen eighteen by the French Mississippi Company. New Orleans is one of the oldest cities in the nation, and the Louisiana Purchase between France and America in 1803 officially made it an American city, although it had actually been under Spanish rule for all but a brief period up until then. The city was already no stranger to change, but over the years, something else would become all too common in the Big Easy. Bloodshed. From its earliest days and the conflicts with local Native Americans, the history of New Orleans was often synonymous with violence. The city was a part of the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. Not to mention the fact that not only had slavery been booming in and around the city for decades, but for a good while New Orleans had the largest slave market in the entire country. So it already had its fair share of death and destruction by the beginning of the 20th century. But in May of 1918, exactly 200 years after it was founded, a new chapter in the dark history of New Orleans would begin. Even now, over a hundred years later, the true identity of the lone psychopath responsible for this bloody new chapter is still disputed. Whoever he was, his nickname is forever linked with the history of New Orleans and instantly recognizable to anyone you ask there, and most true crime enthusiasts worldwide, the Axeman. On the night of May 22nd, Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were resting peacefully in their bed but couldn't have known that when they retired that evening, they would never see the sun again. The Maggios were an Italian family who operated a bar room and grocery out of their home on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia Streets. Joseph's brothers, Andrew and Jake Maggio, also lived in the home and shared a room across the hall from Joseph and Catherine. Andrew worked as a barber by day and took advantage of the New Orleans nightlife after hours. That night, he had arrived home from a night of drinking. He kicked off his shoes and collapsed on the bed where he immediately passed out. He was eventually awoken by strange sounds coming from his brother's room. When he peeked in to investigate, he discovered a horrifically bloody scene. Catherine lay dead in her bed. Her throat had been slit so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Her head had been beaten in as well. Joseph was also still in bed, his throat also slit, and he was too suffering massive head wounds. Head wounds sorry. He had been responsible for the strange, gurgling noises that they had heard. Andrew screamed for help, waking his brother Jake, who entered the room just a minute later, but it was too late. Joseph Maggio died in his brother's arms. It was then that Andrew noticed a bloody axe on the floor by the bed. The killer had left a pile of his bloody clothes and the murder weapon behind. It also appeared as though a chisel had been used to open the door to gain entrance. The Maggio brothers had called for the police, who were equally as shocked by the scene when they arrived shortly after. Corporal Arthur Haytner processed the scene, ruling out robbery as a motive due to all the couple's valuables still being present. 
He then took Jake and Andrew in for questioning, even jailing the surviving Mangios for a brief time. It was suspected they had something to do with the murders after police discovered that the razor used to commit the crimes with belonged to Andrew, although they were released almost immediately. Police soon felt the brothers had both slept through the ordeal and that the murderer was an unknown intruder who had fled the scene. The next incident happened about a month later, in the early morning hours of June 27th. This second attack also occurred at a grocery, this one located at the corner of Dorjanos, I, Dorjana, Dorjana, D-O-R-G-E-N-O-I-S. Forgive me, people, if I have a Cajun friend named Dave, I should have consulted him on some of the pronunciations here, and La Harp Streets. Its owner, Louis Bessemer, and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were sleeping in the quarters at the back of the grocery when an unknown assailant broke in and attacked them. All their valuables and cash were still present, so robbery, again, was not seen as a motive. The couple laid there in a pool of their own blood until 7 the next morning, when delivery truck driver John Zonka finally discovered them. Bessemer had been struck above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Lowe had been hacked over the left ear. Like the Maggio's, it appeared a chisel was used to open the door. The bloody axe was found in the apartment bathroom. Miraculously, the couple survived their injuries, although Harriet would die later due to complications of a surgery to fix her paralyzed face, and I think that was about a month after the initial attack. Now, they may have survived that initial attack, but any hopes that the pair had gotten a good look at their attacker were soon dashed. Lewis was fast asleep when he was struck and had quickly lost consciousness. He saw nothing. Harriet proved to be an interesting character, to say the least, voicing her dislike of the police and eventually halting her cooperation with them altogether. But before that, she had made several outrageous claims, like how at first it was a mulatto man who had attacked them and that Lewis was actually a German spy. Now, that last one prompted authorities to search his home, and they actually did find some papers with German, German writing on them. rather. But New Orleans, just like the rest of the U.S., is a nation of immigrants and hundreds of thousands of people have literature and the language of their homeland, and besides that, the material did not prove to be nefarious in any nature whatsoever. So when that didn't stick, Harriet claimed shortly before her death that it was Lewis himself who had been her attacker. Now, this may seem crazy considering that it meant Lewis had also been the one to strike himself in the head, but it's not totally uncommon for someone to stage an attack this way to remove suspicion from themselves. There are many examples, but the first one that came to my mind was the case of Darlie Rudier. Now, if you haven't heard about her, she's the girl who killed both of her sons and slit her own throat in order to claim that a random assailant was responsible for the attacks. She cut her throat so deeply, she only missed her carotid artery by like two millimeters or less. So that's a real case that happened. And uh, of course, she ended up being the murderers of her own sons. But even before Harriet's accusations, Lewis was not being looked upon too favorably by anyone. Everyone assumed she was his wife when the attacks first happened, and it was several days later the media discovered she was actually his mistress, and when they found this out, they pounced. The media has not just been the way they are now. They've always been that way, so just in case you were wondering. It didn't help matters also when Lewis's actual wife returned from her trip that she had been on in Cincinnati just a few days later. Now, many saw him as a philandering horn dog more than a victim of a terrible assault. He was subsequently charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919, after a 10-minute jury deliberation. <clears throat> now, Lewis wasn't their only suspect. 
About a week prior to the incident, Lewis had hired a guy named Lewis Albacon, a 41-year-old African-American. Other than Harriet's brief claim that their assailant had been mulatto, which really didn't even match him, 50%, I guess, matched him, but not even fully. Other than that, no evidence existed whatsoever that would have proved him guilty, but the police arrested him anyway, stating that Albacon had offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts on the morning of the attack. Thankfully, though, he too was soon released when police could not make the charges stick. Now, in the early morning hours of August 5th, five weeks after the attack on Lewis and Harriet, a young woman named Anna Schneider was attacked in her home on Elmira Street. She actually woke up in just enough time to see the dark figure of a man standing over her before she was struck in the face and the top of her head multiple times. Her husband, Edward Schneider, found her when he arrived home late from work just after midnight. Thankfully, there were no blows to her torso because Anna was eight months pregnant at this time. Thankfully, she survived and the very next day gave birth to a healthy baby girl. I'm sorry, two days after the attack. I want to get that right. Again, no valuables were taken and police were scratching their heads as far as a motive. Uh, And again, a chisel was used to gain entrance. There was also no sign of a murder weapon, leaving authorities to suggest Maybe a tableside lamp had been used in the beating. It was uh, at this point that the police began to entertain the possibility that Anna's attack could have been connected with those of the Maggios and Lewis and Harriet. Now, the attacker, whoever it was, was ramping up the violence at this point. Rather than waiting several weeks like he had previously done, this time he struck again just five days later. Joseph Romano was an elderly man living with two of his nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. On the night of August 10th, the girls were woken by strange noises coming from their uncle's room. They rushed in to find Joseph covered in blood and would get what would be the first decent description of the phantom assailant. Both girls described him as a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. This made police wonder if Harriet Lowe had at least been telling the truth about something. The attacker's M.O. was very clear now and present in this incident as well. He chiseled away a door panel again to gain entrance, had not stolen any valuables, and had struck the old man in the head with an axe that was later found in the backyard. Joseph Romano, although bleeding badly from his head wounds, was able to walk to the ambulance, but unfortunately he passed away from his injuries two days later. Now, I want to deviate from the notes here just for a second to address this whole chiseling through a door panel thing. Now, each, each case that I've talked about, I've mentioned that he uh, used a chisel to gain entrance. And what that means is he chiseled away a door panel, a wooden door panel. To me, my God, that is the loudest. What more could you do other than bring a jackhammer in and start jackhammering on their, you know, the concrete walk path outside the door? He used a hammer and chisel, I guess. Or maybe the flat side of the axe and and chisel to to blast out, to knock out one of these wooden door panels and crawl through that. I just don't know who could sleep through that. Um, I do know that most of these were immigrant Italian families who operated groceries on the bottom floor. And so, you know, and I guess in maybe every one of these cases, the folks were sleeping upstairs. But I've got a two-story house, and I can tell you that if I'm upstairs and someone starts beating on my front door with a chisel... I'm going to hear it. I mean, even if I'm in a dead sleep, that was a little weird. And I thought it, it, you know, warranted just a a side, a little side groove there to, I don't know. 
it's very strange. I don't know who, but apparently nobody was woken up by this chiseling away of the door panel. Uh, I don't know. The attacks were already getting headlines and causing tensions around the city, but the Romano murder sent New Orleans into an all-out panic. There was a flood of reports of men with axes seen in dark alleyways and side streets. People were claiming to find discarded axes in their backyards, and they were triple-locking their doors before going to sleep. That week, the front page of the paper read in bold capital letters, Who Will Be Next? And the city of New Orleans waited to see who the next victim would be. And waited. And waited. But it would turn out that the axe man, whoever he was, had apparently stopped. The attacks had been going on for almost three months, with sometimes only days in between, with the latest attack on Joseph Romano occurring in early August. So it was assumed that the next would be within just a few days or maybe a week or two. But as August gave way into September, then October, then November, many of the city's anxieties started to relax. Then even more time passed. And as the new year ushered in 1919 and the official end of World War I, there was definitely a lighter mood in the air, in the city, and in the entire country. People started to get back to their normal selves. Then, as spring neared in the Big Easy, all hopes that the dreaded axe man had stopped, moved on, died, or been imprisoned on other charges were dashed. The nightmare began all over again on the night of March 10th in the New Orleans suburb of Gretna, just across the Mississippi River. It was seven months to the day since the last attack. The Cordomiglias were a hard-working immigrant family who lived on the corner of Jefferson Avenue and 2nd Street. Charles, his wife Rosie, and their two-year-old daughter Mary were all asleep when an intruder entered their room and started frantically swinging an axe, striking everyone. Their screams were heard from their neighbor, Orlando Giordano, another Italian grocer who lived just across the street. There was an ass load of Italian groceries in New Orleans in the early 1900s. I'm telling you, there was a, I don't know, talk about a flooding of the market. It sounds like there was an Italian grocer on every corner of every street. I don't know how anyone made any money being an Italian grocer back then, but that's beside the point. Now, by the time Giordano made it over to the Cordomiglias to investigate, he was greeted by the sight of Rosie, bleeding profusely, standing in the doorway and holding her child. Joseph was lying in the floor behind her, also severely injured. The couple were rushed to nearby Charity Hospital and treated for multiple head lacerations and fractured skulls. Charles was released just two days later, and Rosie a little while after that. Unfortunately, though, little Mary did not survive. Authorities knew immediately that the axe man was back. Along with the style of the attacks, there was also a chiseled door panel and a bloody axe found in the backyard. He may as well have just left his signed calling card there, which I basically I guess he did. <clears throat> However, Rosie would soon turn the investigation on its head when she suddenly declared that it was their neighbor, Orlando Giordano, and his 18-year-old son, Frank, who had assaulted them and killed her daughter. This made literally zero sense because Giordano was an older and slightly frail man who was not physically able to bludgeon an entire family to death with an axe, or attempt to. And his son Frank, he fit the bill a little more. He stood over six feet tall and at 200 pounds. He could have done these attacks easily, but those same traits made it impossible for him to fit through the, the chiseled door panel. I mean, it was only so ever, you know, many inches wide by tall 
and the investigators at the time measured it and said not happening. So add to this to the fact that Charles vehemently denied Giordano's had anything to do with it. Still, though, no doubt feeling the heat from the citizens and the press, the police arrested the Giordano's and charged them with murder. A little bit frightening. I think I said this on the last uh, podcast, but uh, yeah, it sounds like back then I've read so many cases where the police would arrest someone on literally nothing, nothing more than the word of someone who's like, yeah, I think it was them. Now, in a lot of cases, they were released at some point later, but it's still scary. After a speedy trial, young Frank was sentenced to hang while his father received life in prison. Charles, furious with his wife over her supposed false accusations, divorced her immediately. Now, nine months later, Rosie Cortemiglia would finally admit that the uh, Giordanos were indeed innocent. She had only accused them because she had been spiteful and jealous of them and the success of their grocery, and the Giordanos were released from prison soon after. I couldn't find whether or not Rosie was ever charged with a false confession or obstructing an investigation, but I hope she was punished somehow for sending two men to prison, that is, you know, even though it wasn't forever. Even a day in prison when you are uh, not deserving of it is horrible, I'm sure. So with this latest attack, the Axeman had re-entered the public sphere in brutal fashion. But this time he followed up his crime with something he hadn't done before. A letter. Directly after the attack on the Cordomiglias, the city's papers received a letter from the Axeman. They published it on March 13th, 1919, and it read as follows. Esteemed mortals of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis, Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people, and here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. 
If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm or fancy. The Axeman. So, yeah. The Axeman of New Orleans, if that was truly him that penned that letter, and it's, far as I know, universally accepted, or mostly universally accepted, that that was him, is a damn psychopath. Uh, or he was just really trying, I think more like it was just, obviously he's a psychopath because he's busted into people's homes and, and hitting them with an axe. But I think all that was BS, uh, even to him, and even he knew it. I really don't think he believed any of that. I think he was just playing it up. I think he was just uh, kind of a lone nut uh, sicko that, that got off on reading the papers and knowing that he was you know, inspiring all this fear and terror around the city. And he wanted to play that up, right? That's my opinion, but hey, I've been wrong before. The barbarity of the last attack, the fact that a baby was murdered, and this extremely disturbing letter threw New Orleans into an all-out panic. Apart from the letter giving a now famous name to the previously anonymous monster, he also made an open threat to an entire city. The night of March 19th came, and every dance hall in the city was filled to capacity, and professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. The night came and went without incidents. New theory just came to me. I think that maybe the club owners of New Orleans got together and thought, how can we manipulate this situation in such a way that we can benefit from it? There you go. Boom. Because looking back, it kind of seems silly. And even if it really was the uh, the the jazz man, I, he probably just did it to see if it would work. And then he probably strolled around the city that night and heard jazz coming from every single, you know, home and and town hall and and club and smiled to himself just to see if he, you know he could get a reaction out of people. But uh, the other theory is kind of funny. And the rest of March came and went without incident as well, just like that night. And then April, and then May, June, and July. But considering the break that had just occurred and how it ended, and the psychopathic letter, this time the people were not quite as quick to assume the old axe man had stopped. Instead, they resigned themselves to wait with cautious optimism that this madman had finally gone away. Then, just like the first time, the demon appeared again. On the night of August 10th, exactly five months after attacking the Cordomiglias, the axe man broke into the home of grocer Steve Boca. Steve woke just seconds before an axe came crashing into his skull. He was knocked unconscious, but when he came to, he managed to get to his feet and stumble into the street and to the home of his neighbor, Frank Janusa, before again losing consciousness and collapsing. Police immediately knew the axe man had struck again. There were no valuables taken, and the door panels had been chiseled out to gain entrance. Thankfully, Steve Boca eventually made a full recovery from his injuries. Less than a month later, on September 3rd, 19-year-old Sarah Lawman was attacked in her bed as she slept. Neighbors attempted to check on her after hearing some noises, and when she did not answer, they broke into her apartment. 
They found Sarah lying unconscious in her bed. She had suffered severe head wounds and was missing several teeth, but she too survived her attack. However, much like the others, she was unable to provide any details at all about her assailant. Next victim was Mike Pepitone. So it's still debated, debated sorry, whether or not the next attack was committed by the Axeman. You decide. On the night of October 27th, 1919, the wife of Mike Pepitone was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of their bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding man was fleeing the scene. Mike had been struck in the head and was covered in his own blood, as was much of the room. It was a gruesome scene. Miss Pepitone was unable to describe any of the characteristics of the killer. Though many attribute this as the final murder by the Axeman of New Orleans, there is also good evidence that the Pepitones had been in a long-standing squabble with a fellow Italian family and that this was basically a quote-unquote hit. Either way, after this incident, there were no more axe murders in New Orleans. After a while, it seemed that the Axeman, whoever he was, had finally stopped his reign of terror. In New Orleans, at least. So for the next couple of years... Similar attacks would occur elsewhere in Louisiana. In December of 1920, Joseph Sparrow and his daughter were murdered in their home in Alexandria. In January of 1921, Giovanni Orlando was killed in his residence in Deritter. The last murder that could possibly be an Axeman attack was that of Frank Scalisi in Lake Charles in April 1921. The killer's modus operandi was the same, break into an Italian grocer in the middle of the night and attack the family with an axe. We can almost certainly pin these last four murders on the axe man. And although he disappeared into history after these last crimes, for real this time, there would be eventually more attacks blamed on him. So, back in the first incident at the Maggio's in May of 1918, the police found a peculiar clue. Near the scene of the crimes in the Maggio home was a small message found written in chalk, which read, Ms. Maggio will sit up tonight just like Ms. Tony." Well, it turns out that back in 1911, there were four similar attacks to these, all with an axe and all on Italian grocers. The first victim's name was Cruti. I hope that is pronounced right. C-R-U-T-I. The second was a man named Rossetti, who had been murdered along with his wife. The third was a man named Chiambra, whose wife was also killed. The couple had been shot, though. So if this was the axe man, he at least temporarily changed his M.O., not sure if it was him or not. Lastly, someone by the last name of Tony had been murdered. Although the spelling of Tony was different in the chalk message, T-O-N-E-Y, while this victim's name was spelled T-O-E-N-Y, the similarities were striking. Now, to this day, it is still up to debate as to whether or not these previous four killings were committed by the Axeman of New Orleans. I don't really have a, an opinion on that. I think the gun... The gunshot victims, I doubt were. I guess I do have an opinion on it, don't I? But I feel like the other three could have been. Uh, it's so similar, but who knows? So, there were suspects, other than the ones we've already previously mentioned. Crime writer Colin Wilson speculates the Axeman could have been a guy named Joseph Mumfer, a man he claims was shot to death in Los Angeles in December 1920 by the widow of Mike Pepitone, the Axeman's last known victim. This theory has been widely repeated. However, true crime writer Michael Newton searched New Orleans and Los Angeles public police and court records, as well as newspaper archives, and failed to come up with any evidence of a man named Joseph Mumfer having been assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. 
Newton was also not able to find any information that Miss Pepitone ever was arrested, tried, or convicted for any crime, or had ever even been in California, for that matter. So, Momfer, and that's M-O-M-F-R-E, was not an unusual name in New Orleans in the early 1900s. It appears that there actually may have been an individual named Joseph Momfer, or Mumfer, in New Orleans who had a criminal history and who may have been connected with organized crime. However, local records for the period are not extensive enough to concrete confirm this. Remember the two alleged early victims, the Axeman, the Italian couple, Chiambra, that we just mentioned? In newspaper accounts, the prime suspect was referred to by the name of Momfer. This could either be seen as good evidence that the Axeman was this Joseph Momfer character we're talking about, but it could also be argued that since the Chiambras were shot and not axed, it's doubtful their attack was committed by the Axeman in the first place. Still, though, according to scholar Richard Warner, the chief suspect in the crime was Frank Doc Murphy, who used the alias Leon Joseph Momfer. Murphy died in 1921, after which the Axeman attacks ceased. So there's another theory. The last theory, apart from a lone nut case stalking New Orleans, you know, this is this is this is not as sexy, I guess, if you want to call it. But other theories have been posited, and one is that the crimes were racially motivated. Nearly all of the victims were Italian immigrants, and if not purposefully done, would be quite a fantastic coincidence. Another theory is that most of the crimes had ties to the infamous Italian mafia. However, there is no evidence showing any of the victims had anything to do with the mafia or organized crime. Another is that the crimes weren't even committed by the same man. For whatever reason, murder by axe was all the rage back in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Just look up the Velixa axe, Velisca, that is, axe murders for some proof. And Ivan and I have talked about that on other, we did a podcast episode on that and, and then we uh, axed it. <laughs> no pun intended, because it was fairly gruesome, but it was a gruesome crime. Um, anyway, there were also axe related attacks scattered all over the country throughout this time period. There are even some who believe the Axeman started his crime spree back in the late 1800s, but just hasn't been officially tied to those murders. So what do you think? Who was the Axeman if it was just one man at all? Or was it a series of mafia hits, squabbles between competing grocers? That sounds silly, but who knows? Or has the real truth of what happened been lost to history? The last suspected Axeman attack was nearly 100 years ago now, in an age long before DNA and our current forensic advances. With what limited evidence was left behind, and even the lack of a clear description of the perpetrator, we may never really know. So talk amongst yourselves. Figure out who this guy was. Send us an email and let us know, and we'll crack this case wide open. I am your host, Solo Joe, tonight. Thank you for listening. I'm going to tell you about some feathers I know. A couple gingers named Ivan and Joe who started themselves a little podcast, you know. They talk about everything under the sun that they find interesting, spooky, or fun. They ain't trying to impress no one. Remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of mantis uh, 
one week they might talk about old Mike. The next might be about the Yuba County Five. Well, they even did one about the Hornet Spook Light. I'm sure they'll carry on for a good long spell. Cause this old world's as weird as hell. And there'll never be no shortage of stories to tell. Remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of mantis The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of mantis